Welcome to the Capital Weekly Podcast. I'm Capital Weekly Editor-in-Chief Rich Eisen. I'm joined, as always, by my colleague and partner in crime, Tim Foster. Good morning, Tim. How are you doing today? I'm well. Thanks, Rich. Great. Well, we have another really special guest with us today, uh, one of the most accomplished figures in recent California political history, uh, Senator Tony Atkins. Uh, Senator Atkins has been a trailblazer on multiple levels including being the first person in 150 years to lead both chambers of the California State Legislature, as well as being the first woman and the first openly LGBTQ woman to do so at all. So, I mean, that's a lot of firsts there. Um, and of course, Senator Atkins, as you know, is turned out later this year. And so she stepped down from the position, the pro tem position this week to allow for a smooth transition to the new Senate leader, Senator Mike McGuire, uh, and we asked her to come on the show this week to talk a bit about her time in the ledge and, and her future plans, which some of you might have heard includes her candidacy to become the state's next governor, uh, which, by the way, if she wins, would also make her the first woman in California history to be elected to that position. So with all of that, Senator Atkins, welcome to the Capital Weekly Podcast. We're so glad to have you with us. Rich, thank you. Also, thank you, Tim. It's great to be here. Well, um, you know, there's a lot of stuff to unpack there here in such a short time. So I'm going to get right to it um, because I wanted to start with something that I think every person in your position thinks about at some point, which is your legacy. I mentioned several things in that intro that will always be a part of, of your history with the legislature. But what do you think about the most in that regard? Uh, you know, what are the measures or the or the accomplishments maybe that you are the most proud of? You know, that is hard. I appreciate you asking, and I get asked that question a lot, but I've been doing this for 30 years at the local level, at the state level. You know, I, I think the most rewarding issues and topics I've, I've been able to work on are those things that reflect back to the values and, and, and my lived experience growing up. So issues like health care, expanding health care for as many people as possible. I grew up without health care. Uh, the earned income tax credit is really important to me. I did that when I was speaker and we were able to extend it, expand it twice. You know, I grew up very poor and I remember getting one check back from the government uh, and it made a huge difference in my family's life uh, at that moment. Um, clearly, um, I think the water bond, I actually love infrastructure. I can talk at length about why that's important from many angles economically you know, from a quality of life, uh, local government. So the water bond, which as we look at it raining outside this week, um, you know, it has an impact on work that we're doing up and down the state, uh, that water bond, $7.3 billion. And we did that under Jerry Brown. And then of course, I've got to say, I ran a women's clinic um, back in the mid eighties. So the work that I've been able to do on reproductive rights and justice, Proposition One, enshrining abortion contraception into the Constitution, but and my work on housing. So it's hard to pick one favorite, Rich. Well, I understand, and I don't mean that to sound too like you know we're you're all done because you're not. You you've stepped aside to as you as I noted to to kind of ease that transition, but you have this entire legislative year yet to go. What are your priorities this year? 
Well, I'm going to continue to work on the things that, you know, that matter to me personally. I've got, uh, I'm still putting my package together, but I've got a couple of pieces of legislation that extends and expands on women's health care issues. I said I worked at a clinic that did reproductive health care and health care for women and their families. Um, Clearly, I'm going to look at housing um, because that's an issue. And of course, climate. You know, I I led on a package of bills with my colleagues in the Senate uh, last year or two years ago, actually. And so there's just so much to do. I really that my dilemma is limiting it, you know, in the year that I have left. When you see what you have before you, you think of all the things you're working on. When you see you've got a year, all of a sudden it's like, boy, I've got so much more to do. And but it will be women's health, health care housing, and likely some issues related to climate. Well, one thing, uh, you've been a major part of so many budget negotiations. And of course, this year, you know, we're dealing with a major budget deficit, which we haven't had in a few years. Um, That was not in in that list of priorities you just gave me. I mean, have you adjusted to not being that involved in that that element of of your job this year? Absolutely not. I think that uh, as part of the Senate, um, you know, for the last, um, well, the whole time in the Senate, but the last six years, you know, I've been able to be part of shaping what the budget looks like. Our goal, and and I'm part of the Senate caucus, will be to protect the progress we've made while ensuring that we look at the fiscal situation we're in. Look, the economy looks good, but we have to be mindful uh, of the 38 plus billion dollar deficit that that we have. I think we'll know more come June. Uh, so clearly, I'm going to continue to focus on this because you know I have aspirations, and you know uh, that ex- that extends beyond this moment. And we have worked the last decade to work our way back. When I first got elected in 2010, and Governor Brown came into office, we had a 26 billion dollar real deficit. We had no rainy day fund. We had no reserve. Uh, We actually cut services. What you see now because of a decade of responsible budgeting, working our way back, uh, obviously California voters helping us put together a rainy day fund, supporting that, uh, supporting a majority budget. You know, we were prepared for this moment. It doesn't mean we should not be careful. So no, I'm I will be as engaged uh, in in how we look at the budget. Um, That's a team sport and I'm still a team player. And I I feel like we worked hard to be in the position where we can weather this storm. And so I'll be, it'll be a big part of what I I focus on as well. You know, I admit, I I really do miss uh, Governor Brown's budget uh, press conferences with the charts. That was one of my favorite parts of doing this job was getting to, to be part of the Jerry Brown chart progressions and, and him holding them above his head and showing us how things were going to work. So that was that was a lot of fun. Um, but speaking of that, of course, you, you noted your aspirations. You are running for governor, uh, which, as I noted, would break uh, new ground here in California, which is really interesting to me because for all of our progressive bona fides in this state, we've never had uh, a woman elected governor, which is, I mean, you know, Wyoming, Texas, Utah, Alaska, Oklahoma, Louisiana, South Carolina, even Alabama have are states that have all had female governors. And it's not, you know, coincidental, those are all pretty red states this day and age, but we've never had one here. So whether it's you or one of the other uh, candidates seeking this position, what do you think it would mean for California? What, what 
impact would it have for us to finally elect a woman as a governor? Well, I think it's time. It's long past time to elect a qualified woman to run the state. I mean, California, we see ourselves as a beacon. We see ourselves as the wave of the future, innovation. Well, I, I think it's time uh, to have a woman leader. We've clearly had some good women run for governor. And um, I think um, I look forward to this opportunity because I think it is a very unique opportunity. You do have uh, several women running for governor. I just, uh, you know, I think qualifications, experience matters. And I think, you know, one of the reasons I put my hat in the ring and want to run and continue to do public service is because I think I have a unique um, set of uh, qualifications to bring. I have negotiated eight budgets with two different governors. It is really important for any governor to be able to work successfully with the legislator, uh, with the legislature. And I know how to do that. Uh, I've been part of both houses. So I think between the experience, the work I've done legislatively, um, I am uniquely qualified and hopefully I will be that first woman. Um, but I will say, you know, when you're making history, you're not necessarily always aware. I have followed my passion. I love the work. Uh, and then all of a sudden you become mindful of the situation that I'm the first woman in the Senate, the third woman speaker. Uh, following Doris Allen and, and, of course, Karen Bast, one of my good friends, um, the first LGBTQ. Uh, I mean, you become mindful of all of a sudden people are really watching you from a lot of different lenses and that you need to you need to be really mindful of that and understand how important it is across the spectrum of communities. Right. Well, speaking of other differences, uh, and you alluded to this a little bit earlier, you have a very different background than the other candidates running for governor. Uh, you grew up in a house without running water. And I've read that that has kind of given you uh, some common ground with some of your Republican colleagues. And I'm wondering if you can talk about that and how that experience kind of gives you an insight that maybe your 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 other colleagues uh, that are running for governor don't have. Mm -hmm. Well, you know, everybody has a story. We all have stories. And it's um, it's our lived experience, our stories. It's how we connect to other people that I find interesting. Um, you know, I grew up in a conservative, rural, southwestern Virginia community. I had substandard housing. We didn't have running water. Um, you know, I never knew those would be qualifications that I would be, you know, putting forward. In fact, I spent most of my life trying to not share that with people. But we all have lived experiences. Um, I really believe that from where I govern, it really is about the values that I grew up on and the lived experience and how to see, uh, to share that with others so they understand that our work needs to be about people across the spectrum of economic. We talk about me being uh, a woman and a member of the gay community. The first and foremost thing I will always remember is growing up poor and what that felt like. So, um, and I do get along uh, with colleagues from both any side of the aisle. I mean, you know, because I grew up in a conservative community in Southwest Virginia. Um, that's what I know. That's the environment in which I learned. Uh, I served on the San Diego City Council at a time when it was majority Republicans. So I couldn't get anything done if I, if I weren't willing to work across, across aisles and, and perspectives. So I think the combination of working in different political 
um, environments and the lived experience, I, I think it adds to the unique perspective that I bring. Everybody brings themselves to the arena. And I just hope that that resonates with Californians because I really believe that there are Californians that really are going to see that and understand that maybe I'm going to put things through a different lens when I do legislation, when I govern. And so, um, uh, you know, I just feel very fortunate to have this opportunity because someone like me wouldn't necessarily. And that's why I do talk about the California dream, which sounds a little hokey, maybe, but I've lived it. I have lived it. I understand it. And I am so grateful that California gave me every opportunity. You know, Senator, we've covered a lot here about the efforts to achieve gender parity in the legislature. And, you know, there's a lot of elections coming up. I know there's a lot of folks who are really uh, of a mind that maybe that time is coming. Um, and I, and I'm talking with so many uh, both elected women and those who try to help women get elected, you know, the thing they bring up a lot is fundraising and the, and the challenges of competing with men in particular when it comes to fundraising, especially early in races. And I'm thinking of that now because, you know, we, we, we look at who's raising the money now and right now the person with the most money is not even in the race yet. And, and I say yet without any knowledge of whether, and of course I'm speaking of attorney general Rob Bonta, mm -hmm. um, you know, Talk about that challenge a little bit of raising money uh, as a female candidate, maybe in particular, you know, when you're we're still maybe in this environment a little bit of the old boys network, no, no, no matter how much we're trying to get past that. I mean, how does that how does that uh, play out in terms of being competitive for, for something like this? You know, I think it's that's a little more complex. I think women have gained a lot of ground in understanding that if we are going to run, we, I mean, when we, women run, we win at even higher numbers. But you got to convince women to run. And part of that is fundraising. And it's still very true. And I credit the Women's Caucus, uh, the Democratic arm of the Women's Caucus. They have their own PAC. And the work that chairs, former uh, chair of that PAC, Christina Garcia, she made it her number one priority, along with Nancy Skinner and obviously now Cecile Aguiar-Curry. They've been incredibly successful going toe-to-toe. -to -toe. But women, I mean, a lot of this is traditionally, we have not been um, socialized to ask for things for ourselves. And I think that's still true, but I think we've gained a lot of ground. And, you know, uh, California, we're, we're at the all-time high, 50 women in terms of parity. Only Colorado and Nevada, I think, have have achieved that. And I just I think we have learned to support each other. And and by the way, you know, now there is no woman leader in California in the legislature at either speaker or pro tem or the Republican leadership. Um, you know, at one point in my tenure, there were three women, you know, and and one male. And and so I think we have to continue to realize that it has to be intentional. And yes, fundraising is still hard. Uh, fundraising is still hard. I've been pretty successful as a fundraiser on behalf of my caucuses. And I just have to translate. I mean, let me tell you, it's a lot different to ask someone for uh, $250 when I ran for city council and now tell them that they can actually give me $36,400, I think it is. That's still a hard one to, to spit out. So I hope we continue to understand that we should be asking on behalf of ourselves. 
because we're going to be representing so much more than just the individual me if we are if and when we are successful. Well, you know, that is the reason I asked the question about what it, what it means, uh, to, you know, for maybe California to elect a woman as governor, because I think um, I think so often what we talk about is people want to see people who look like them have shared experiences in leadership. And I think for a lot of young women, you know, we've talked about this a lot in society. It's it's tough when you don't see that role model to emulate. And, I, you know, having a female governor would cer certainly seem to me to be an inspirational thing for, you know, young women getting into politics and seeing what the possibilities are when you when you don't never see that that top job being filled by somebody yeah. who looks like you. That's got to be, you know, even psychologically, just a little bit of a drain. I, you know, I, I one thing I will say on that, there are exceptions to the rule. I mean, clearly, Meg Whitman had access to a lot of resources. Our lieutenant governor has access to resources. So there are exceptions to the rule. But I would point out to regular folks listening to this that the reason you have to raise the money is you have to introduce yourself to, I mean, 27 million registered voters, particularly in California, that I have to reach. Uh, and then, you know, we've got 39 plus million people in California. This is the biggest media market in the world. And politics, given what it is today in our society and in California, we have to be able to get in front of the voters. And clearly, I'm not going to be able to talk to 27 million people directly, although my spouse thinks I'm going to try. Um, it, you know, it's hard. And that's why we raise the money. And that's, you know, that is the point to make to to California, because I hear a lot of people who get disinterested in politics and say, oh, my God, there's so much money going into it. The simple message is it's the only way I'm, I'm able to connect with so many people. And so for women, it is a little bit harder. Um, and, uh, you know, I'm going to hope to change that. Well, so let me let me, let, me, let me broach probably the unthinkable for you. What happens if you don't win? I know how dedicated you've been to public service for all these decades. But, you know, it's a crowded field. Lots of things can happen. What happens if you don't win? You know, I think for me, for me not to try and do this because I feel like I still have a lot to offer. I still love public service. The best part of it is actually the people and the constituents. I, I will just find another passion. But I believe uh, that I can change the trajectory here and, and I'm going to give it everything I've got because I have to. You know, I it, I've followed my passion my entire, you know, not just my political life, but what took me into the clinic to be a, a director of a women's health clinic and to work at San Diego Job Corps and help students was passion. And so I'm going to ride the passion and hope that I'm successful. If not, uh, you know, I'll find something else I'm passionate about. Well, Senator, thank you so much for coming on the show today. We really appreciate it. Um, really. Wish you luck. We, we we have to wish everybody luck. That is part of what we do. You know, we have to be fair here, but uh, really appreciate you coming on and sharing uh, your thoughts on your campaign and your legacy here in the California State Legislature. Well, thank you both. It's been an enjoyable time. I, I appreciate all your questions. All right. Well, thanks again to Senator Tony Atkins uh, for coming on the show today. And now it is time for our favorite part of the show every week, which is who had the worst week? in California politics. The worst week. Worst week. Worst week. Worst week. 
Well, Tim, you know, as always, there's probably a couple of options, but I think the one that, that, for lack of a better term, trumps everything else is when somebody gets to go to jail. And uh, you've got a real good one based on that very uh, that very fact, correct? Yes, presidential advisor Peter Navarro and candidate for multiple California offices throughout his career, which I don't think he ever won. I think he lost every election he ever ran in uh was ordered to jail he he is to serve a four-month sentence and was trying to uh trying to stave that off court said nope and it's unclear exactly when he's got to go but he's got to go yes and he is the first member of trump's advisory you know his i hate the term inner circle but i guess it's applicable here but he's the first one of trump's inner circle to actually get sent to jail now there may be more eventually. I think we're very aware of all the legal ramifications going on around the former president. Um, but uh, Mr. Navarro was the first one to actually get to see the inside of a jail cell. So as I've uh, as I've said on this uh, show several times, nothing really makes for a worse week than ending up in the Huskow. So uh, I think he's the clear winner this week. I'm not sure winner is the right term. We always say that, but may- maybe not the, the appropriate term. So, you know, the thing about Navarro is here's a guy who lost again. I think every every elected office he ever ran for, he failed to attain. But he, he grabs the brass ring and he ends up in a presidential administration. This should be, you know, kumbaya, all's good. And ultimately, it is going to land him in jail. So uh, not great. That qualifies for worst week for me. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Well... With that done, I guess we'll sign off uh, until next time. Thanks again to everybody for joining us on the show, and we will see you next week. Thanks, Rich. We'll talk to you soon. Take care. The Capital Weekly Podcast is produced by Tim Foster for Open California. The Capital Weekly Podcast is supported by TASSEN, the Tribal Alliance of Sovereign Indian Nations.